welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Hi, and welcome to another DIFF Trailblazer podcast. Today, I'm joined by two trailblazers for different reasons. Firstly, Roland McCormack and secondly, Dev Mal. Roland is, as uh, many people will know, Mortgage Distribution Director at TSB. But Roland actually joined Abbey National as a cashier. He's given me the date, but I won't say it because it was in antiquity. But from cashier, he, he moved on to being a mortgage advisor in branch and then to a mortgage broker, then joined Bank of Ireland as a BDM moving on to be a national account manager, then head of sales. And he was MD of Bank of Ireland Mortgages and moved on to Bristol and West as MD. And in 2014, led the launch of TSB into the intermediary market. So Roland has had a fantastic career on both sides of the fence, almost as encompassing of the mortgage market as our other guest, Dev Malley, who I will allow to introduce himself. So Dev, what on earth do you do? My current role is on the dark side of the legal sector and so the conveyancing market. So I'm Chief Business Development Officer at the moment, Barrett. But you started off in a lender at Nationwide on the Graduate Trainee Programme. Tell us how you got in there and what it was like. Yeah, so I started with Nationwide on the Graduate Trainee Scheme. I will say the date was 1990. I remember it well. 17th of September, in fact. And I was quite fortunate because you probably remember what happened to the market very soon afterwards. But what was it like? It was quite interesting because certainly in the early days, I went through retail primarily. And that meant, similar to Rolly, it meant being a cashier, as well as understanding all of the principles of background banking and balancing and all of those kind of things that you have to do in branch. And then later on went into understanding working in those days with intermediaries, selling, etc. So it was, it was a really broad role, but critically very exposed to customers, which was really important, very exposed to the, the breadth of products and those kind of things. And then the last part of my career with Nationwide four years was at their specialist lending arm, UCB. So um, it was quite a broad, wide-ranging career with them, but really great place to start your career. And certainly in the later years, getting exposure to areas like quality of lending committees and and some of the senior roles. That sounds wonderful. And before we actually get to what made you leave, and then we'll bring in Roland, a lot of the trailblazers, and I'd be interested to see if it was similar for Roland too, a lot of trailblazers had a person who became their mentor or who sort of like, you know, gave them a break or understood their qualities when everybody else seemed to be passing them by or were 
really not fighting against their unconscious biases, etc. Did you have someone like that? I was really fortunate, actually, Barrett, and, and yet you're right. My mentor was the person who actually, when I started on the graduate trainee scheme, was actually effectively like the area manager. And he wasn't my mentor at the time, obviously, but as I went through my first few runs up the ladder, I asked him to be my mentor and he had a fantastic career with Nationwide. And he was great to have as a mentor because in those days you used to have quite a robust sort of HR type contract commitment and etc between mentor and mentee and one of the first things he said to me was look this is what we're meant to be doing but this isn't going to be as helpful to you unless I tell you about the wider picture of the organization and what not to trip up over and what to particularly support and help and all the rest of it. And I know it sort of gets into the realms of the politics, but what it does is it it really gets under the skin to help you understand what you need to do and stuff. So he was an absolutely brilliant mentor and a boss as well, actually. Within Nationwide then, were you allowed to approach people and say, will you be my mentor? Was there a an existing mentor-mentee scheme. Yeah, they certainly had a formalized structure for mentoring. And I did, in fact, approach Graham at the time and asked him to formally be my mentor, which he agreed to being. And then you formalize it through centrally. But then you're left to your own devices after that. So it's quite fluid. And with all of these things, when you get commitment on both sides, it works really, really well. If you don't, and I always am a believer that it has to be very much mentee led, because that's when you get the most out of it. And certainly that proved to be the case with me. Roland, so just bringing you in here, did something like that happen to you in terms of your progression from a humble cashier because you were just a cashier weren't you you weren't a cashier as part of a whole load of other things you were learning as a sort of graduate entrant person same as every throughout my career there's been people who've, who've taken a chance on me and, and backed me and when I was at Abbey National I went for a, an interview for a admin supervisor so managing a team of three and it was in the Bogner branch and the branch manager Kay who uh, interviewed me about halfway through said look I'll stop this here she said I've heard no evidence that you would be any good at being an admin supervisor, but I think you'll make a fantastic mortgage advisor. So would you like to come and work for me as a mortgage advisor? And that's really where my mortgage career started off. So it all came with Kay spotting some talent. And you touched on earlier that I joined Bank of Ireland as, as a BDM. When I applied for the role in 94, I actually wasn't successful. But Tony Forbes, who interviewed me, decided that actually he was going to create a trainee role specifically for me. So really, my career in Bank of Ireland and where I find myself today is directly due to Tony taking that chance on me. So that's fascinating, isn't it? So time and time again, we hear that it is people giving you a chance when, strictly speaking, or taking the time to help when, strictly speaking, they shouldn't do or it wasn't part of policy, et cetera, et cetera. Can I ask both of you, before we go back to Dev's career and stuff and Roland's career, is it something you try and do consciously now? Do you look out for people who don't fit the structured norm of good school, good university, good degree, have all the sort of qualities that are expected on the sort of ideal employee model and look out for somebody to help? Absolutely, Barrett. Anyone who comes into our intermediary business and you. I have half an hour with them. That's partly to introduce them, explain our culture and how we do things. But more importantly, it's that first chance to start identifying talent. 
And if I look at my direct reports that I have today, three of the seven I first got to know through that process. And at each time there was something about them that stood out, whether that be their attitude, whether that be their personality or, or, or their energy. So I think it's really important for the likes of Dev and myself and others who have had all the advantages that we look to identify the talent of tomorrow. And do you have an opportunity to do that, Dev, or are you a bit more removed from the sort of front line nowadays? No, no, I think in terms of giving people a chance, absolutely. I suppose it would be almost a little bit rude of me having had people take a chance on me and then not doing it back to other people, wouldn't it? I actually, to the extent that I remember I got promoted once in my early days at Nationwide and some other managers actually, the rumour started spreading that there was favouritism for me to the extent that the person who'd given me the opportunity actually wanted them to take formal action against them, grievance action against them because they wanted to prove that there wasn't. So when someone's so robust and standing behind you so forcefully to say, no, you are the right person, now go and do it, it gives you that confidence and belief, but it stays with you as well. If you ask my daughters, they will say one of my favourite sayings is the cracked ones let in the light. So I think you have to give people the opportunity if you see something in them. That's fantastic because I've done a number of these podcasts with people of colour and they've always sort of said that there was some resentment and some thought about people saying you only got that because you were brown. Did you get any of that? And if you did... How did you combat it or did you just ignore it? I know I look young, but if I go back to certainly my early days, I think it definitely wouldn't have been the case. People weren't as aware of the the whole uh, diversity and inclusion situation then. That was definitely wasn't a reason for getting a job. It was often the reason for not getting a job, I'm afraid. So that certainly wasn't the case in those days. So let's go back to Nationwide. And you sort of told me beforehand that you left because you thought you'd hit a ceiling for the high potential programme, that you'd got as far as you were going to get and you weren't going to get any further, which then you made the, at the time, quite a significant and risky leap from the safe, soft, cloudy lender world to the stormy, dark, dangerous intermediary world. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I love Nationwide. I think I still do. Um, It's in the blood, very protective of them as an organisation. But from a career perspective, one of the things that the High Potential Programme was sort of telling me was, or sorry, my perception of it was, was that I wasn't fitting the mould. I wasn't fitting the whole positioning of the organization and maybe I was a little bit naive at the time or whatever but if I look back on it it was a very very I guess even though it was a mutual organization it was a you know at the senior levels it was a very middle class white male dominated organization it's only recently you've seen sort of younger people going into the executive positions you've seen females going into the executive positions and all the females are non-execs by the way none of them are executive board members and there's only one non-white person and that's a non-exec director as well so you could argue the organization started moving because they've got females and they've got non-white people on the board now but you can imagine going back 20 odd years and even that part hadn't happened then so you could argue there's movement in the right direction but just the whole sort of ethos of the organization I'd had a brilliant career I was ripping up trees it was going really well and I suddenly started getting this feeling the MD at the time I remember I told him I wasn't going to go for a promotion that everyone expected me to to go for and his response was okay thanks for letting me know Deb but can I ask you to stay in reserve just in case I need to come back to you and it was that kind of response very different to what we were talking about earlier and people giving you the opportunity and Roland going to you so you're now a, a trainee BDM 
in, in Bank of Ireland with a background from, you know, in mortgages, coming from the mortgage broker side, coming from cashier, not the graduate, shiny person that they will probably be surrounded by. What do you, do you feel you had to do and what did you actually do in order to accelerate your career to get to, say, the head of sales position, which you got to in 1999? I think the first thing to say, Barrett, was I was so grateful for the opportunity that I worked really, really hard at it. So I was based in Reading, but I was covering the, the south of England. So I would quite happily go to Norwich on a Friday afternoon at 4pm to do an appointment with a broker who was doing business with us or could possibly do business. So I think that's the first thing, just you know, hard work. And the second thing is really knowing the stuff and really going out of a way to understand the market, whether that be the property, whether that be mortgage market, understanding my brokers. So they were the two things. And the the other thing I'd say was about Bank of Ireland, it was an incredibly supportive organisation. You you had people there who wanted you to be a success and and invested in you and gave you time. So I didn't find there was anything holding me back. If anything, there was lots and lots of encouragement. Honestly, going to Norwich at 4pm, that means you probably didn't get back to Reading till the following day. On that point, Barra, is I would say to people listening and thinking about how they can forge their careers, is one of the hardest things to do, especially in today's world, is to get noticed. And actually, one of the ways you get noticed is putting the effort in. And I I know there is dialogue at the moment about work-life balance, etc. But I do think for those of us who've come from maybe a more challenged background, we do have to work harder. I'm sure, Dev, you would have had exactly the same experience through your career. Absolutely. I think you know, even as a trainee, I remember just putting my head down because I was part of the sort of family culture I was from as well, putting my head down and just working really, really hard. And there was a lot of trainees who were from decent universities and thinking who were often say openly, openly say when we were meeting together to say, oh gosh, you know, I've done all of this graduation and this, that and the other. And, you know, this is my background and I'm working on a till now. And my attitude was get on with it. Just Get it done. And as Rolly said, be noticed. And it's interesting that you both have sort of picked up on the point that customer knowledge and market knowledge was not only essential to doing your job properly, but actually helped you in a number of different ways. So where do you think that somebody started their career now, apart from reading Mortgage Solutions, what should they be doing if they're working in mortgages? I think definitely know your stuff. So whatever your job is, you need to understand your job and the markets you operate in. But I think if you want to stand out, it's knowing other stuff. And that's being curious about the world around you, whether that be economics, whether that be politics. Because when you get a chance to interact with more senior people, whether that be by accident because you happen to be in the lift or you come across them at a social event, you're not going to have a conversation about what the income multiple of Nationwide is, for, for example. You're more likely to have a conversation about the economy or politics. So I think it's doing that little bit extra to make sure you understand what's going on in the world and and how that impacts your role and your organisation. Yeah, we just said, didn't we be noticed? And you're going to be noticed by adding something different and standing out. So that wider experience is absolutely essential. It also shows that you're interested in your care and, and all of those kind of things as well. So I couldn't agree with Rolly more. And, and after a while, once you start learning, you'll soon know whether you have a passion for it or not. And if you do, you'll stand out even more. That's very good advice to a lot of people. You should read Morgan Solutions and actually generally be interested. And, and I think if you've got an area like yours, Rolly, when you had as a BDM, 
some local knowledge must have always been useful. You need to know who the big builders were in the area, house prices, all those sort of things. There was really no point, I'm assuming, just turning up knowing your own products without necessarily knowing the guy or the lady you're going to see own marketplace and own aspirations. Yeah, I mean, working for Bank of Ireland, we had half percent share of the market. So yeah, we had to really understand where our niches were and how we compared against the, the, the rest of the market. We never led on rate. So that knowledge of the broker's business, the area and your own product, and you just find the area where there's the overlap. Let's move on, Dev, to the situation that we have at the moment of representation of people of colour in the mortgage market. We've all agreed, I think, in various conversations we've had in various different events and places, it's an enormously welcoming and largely, at the moment, colourblind industry. And do you feel, and I would ask you frankly as one North Asian person to another, do you think this is a DDLA situation, which basically means that people from the Asian subcontinent don't consider mortgages as a viable profession because they're not doctors, dentists, lawyers or accountants? Yes and no. Yes, because it could have potentially happened to me. I mean, I share with you the story the day I chose my A-level options after having done O-levels. And you'll know from that how old I am, that my oldest brother, uh, there's a big age gap between us. My oldest brother picked me up from school and I told him I'd just chosen my A-level options. And he said, what have you chosen? I said, economics, geography, politics, and we have to do general studies. And his response was, oh, you can't be a doctor with those A-levels. So the lawyer, accountant, doctor thing was that I would never, ever get married if I didn't choose one of those professions. So that was definitely that generation. I think it's changing for two reasons. I think one is you're getting younger generation coming up and being far more diverse in terms of their career paths and stuff like that and not sticking to the normal, what previous generation parents expected. But two, you've got some great people and role models in the industry now as well in really senior positions. But it doesn't have to be just in senior positions. In positions which are then telling people and broadcasting that it's a great industry it's full of fabulous people and you get a lot of satisfaction from the work that you do within it so for those reasons i think it's changing and changing at a pace as well and in terms of that sort of change and pace of change roland the industry doesn't sort of look anything like or behave anything like it did even five years ago have you noticed a pace of change in terms of diversity and inclusion and the focus on it and trying to broaden the the pool of talent that we're actually employing to make us a better industry both on the intermediate side and on the lender side there's always work to be done but i think it's transformed from when i first started at bank of ireland in 1994 it was white it was male it was middle-aged and basically it was all about whether you could play golf And it's great to see that has changed. And I think part of that's been driven by the prosperity that the industry has experienced over the last 10, 15 years. It's a place where people with a good work ethic and the right attitude can get on, can make a decent living. And they don't necessarily have to have gone to university or have a certain amount of qualifications other than CMAP. So I think from that perspective, it's very welcoming. Let's move on to the tricky question, uh, Dev, that we said we would sort of try and touch on. And I'd love Rowley's view on this. And this is sort of, you know, difficult. For for many years, Dev, you and I were the only non-white people at a range of fairly senior events. You were there because you deserved to be there. I was there because, as the publishers, we were putting on the events, usually. So I was chairing them. And as the only brown people there... 
you and I would have what we would have retrospectively called banter. Now it may be deemed as ethnically inappropriate conversations. Do you think that the, I admit it here, that we used to joke with each other about either one of us, but more likely you, because I had the microphone, being a news agent. And if anybody had missed their times, it was because it was your fault and you drunk too much the night before or whatever. Do you think that that had a damaging impact on the rest of the audience in terms of how they perceived people from the subcontinent? I mean, it's a really interesting question, Barrett. I suppose one of the ways of answering the question is what impact did it have on me, first of all, I guess. And when you grow up through life, having had racial slurs thrown at you and all sorts of things and nicknames that you just had to live with and you saw your parents being spat at and stuff like that. These kind of things that were genuinely, for me, would have been banter. So I certainly didn't personally feel any offence. Having said that, what message does it give out to the audience? Is it inappropriate? Probably does give out the wrong message. It probably tells them it's okay to do this. And I also think it's unfair for some people to say, oh, well, it's okay to do it because Barrett did it and he's also brown. I think that's the wrong thing as well. So I think there's a level of inappropriateness and we probably crossed the line or let me just rephrase that. You probably crossed the line, but we did it at the time as friends rather than trying to put someone down. But the impact on the wider audience was probably inappropriate and negative. Would you agree, Rowley? How did it make you were there on a number of occasions? And did you sort of feel well, I mean, I don't know. How, how did you feel? This is a really interesting one. And I agree with Dev on this. It's not like the experience that Dev had in terms of when he was growing up. But yeah, I come from an Irish family and all the Irish jokes were relentless. And I remember my dad, who was Irish, he told some great Irish jokes. But looking back, it just tend to reinforce this stereotype that was prevalent at the time that Irish people are thick. And it gave people an excuse to think that way. So I think we have to be really careful with how we choose our words. But that said, there is a balance. And I think the danger is that we focus on words rather than deeds. Agreed. And I do think there are some very, very great people in our industry from an Irish background. And they do tell the best Irish jokes I've ever heard. And well, too. So I think getting on to it... Sorry, about I'd make one other point. The thing is, we're senior people, okay? So people look to us to set the tone. So therefore, we have to be really careful and measured in the language that we use because others will follow our lead. Agreed and point taken. But going back to the situation, the last time we were sort of gathered at a sort of fairly senior leadership event, again, it got back to the point where Dev and I were the only brown people in the room. There were a lot more women, which was fantastic. But the only black person in the room and three of the women were there because TSB had sponsored them to be there as part of a diversity initiative, which, which was a fantastic thing for you to do, Roland. So you said that we've got a long way to go. That does seem at that high leadership level that that's not changed as much as you, you would have wanted it to by now. As I said earlier, I think we've made decent progress. I guess the next five years are going to be key because we're going to see a number of people of a certain age who are in senior positions across our industry retiring. And I think 
we'll really see what change has been embedded by how the leadership positions across the industry look after that happens. I'm relatively optimistic. If I think of you know, who's likely to replace me, then I think we'll see diversity. Dev, so where are your ambitions then? Assuming that we're somehow not retired and we have wheelchair access at a big Senate or, or San Paul type event in five years time, what kind of makeup of that event in terms of men, women, black, brown, any other sort of issues in terms of sort of sexual orientation, what kind of makeup of that group of people, say there's sort of like 50 of them, would be something that we should be aiming for? I guess the obvious answer is, why on earth wouldn't it be representative of society? I think the other point is that we talked earlier about, for example, just Asian people. Why aren't they coming through into financial services? I think they are. These things won't change overnight because it would be unfair as well to take someone who's not ready for a particular type of role or seniority and stuff and put them there just because they're of colour. That would be unfair on them as much as anything else. That's not to say you don't give people a chance. That's just to say you don't want them to sink either. So I think there's a balance here. The bit that gives me a lot of encouragement just generally, but certainly in terms of future roles and careers and the makeup of our industry as well, is the attitude of younger people. I know all three of us have got, fun enough, two daughters each and Rolly and my daughters are very similar age. And we talk about this outside of these sessions as well. And just their attitude towards things like it's actually trendy now to be anti racist and their cancelling culture and they're just their view on life it's really really encouraging i think that's where we've got to take the encouragement from and be positive about what's going to happen in the future that's good but would you both agree that there's still a situation where we have got to be not lackadaisical about our approach and just hope that time will take its course there still needs to be an enormous amount of proactivity and you've got to be consciously reflecting on your own biases whatever they may be and fighting those biases and being consciously anti-racist rather than simply passively non-racist those are still things that have got to be high on everybody's personal agenda would you agree with that I would certainly agree with that. And I think separate from the mortgage industry, but into the wider world, I mean, when we talk about diversity, we really have to mean diversity. And the point I'd make is that if everyone's gone to the same school and the same university, that doesn't give you diversity. So background is really, really important, and especially when it comes to the design of products to serve the majority of the population. You, know, you do need to have some grounding in what people's day-to-day challenges are in life. In a previous podcast, Rowley, just, just, just to sort of pick up on a point, Brad Fordham, who's had a similar sort of you know career to you, again, into a lender, not having gone to university, et cetera, et cetera. He said that there was a big dislocate between what was happening at the branches and what was happening in head office. And I suppose that could now be translated in what is actually happening in branches and what's actually happening in the field broker focusing, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that senior leadership is aware of that dislocation and are trying to do something about it, or do you still think there's a lot to do? There's always more that can be done. I mean, if I think specifically to TSB, we have a programme called Tap Into Talent, and what that allows people to do who are being identified as talent is to do roles across the business And so it doesn't require a vacancy. It's basically funded by the business. So if you're in branch and particularly you're interested in mortgage product and you're on the talent program, you get an opportunity to go and work in product for six months. So I think it's about creating that access to some of these roles. 
I think there's a lot of things that have happened in the last two years as well. I mean, you know, if you just take DIF as an example, to raise awareness, you know, these podcasts, organizations, what they're doing, some because out of embarrassment, if we're honest, some because they want to be proactive and make change. If I take my organization and look inwards rather than outwards for a second, it was only in the last 12 months, partly driven by things like death and just the general awareness in the market, the Black Lives Matter, etc. We started working with a, an external person, in fact, I'm sure she won't mind me saying, Edlene John, who does the diversity inclusion director at the F and they've had a few challenges, haven't they? But working with her, there's a no-holds-barred audit done in terms of our policy, our approach, and some of the practical things, the actual doing things on a day-to-day basis, how we look at CVs, how we open up positions to everyone to make sure it's fair. And then we commit to getting ourselves audited and getting the feedback on that. You know, all of those things never used to happen 18 months ago. So there's a lot of things which are as a result of the kind of things and the awareness that DIF is doing is highlighting these things and organizations are either being pushed into making these things available and looking inwards at themselves or because they suddenly realise that actually this is where we need to do because we're missing real talent as a result of not doing it. So there's commercial reasons and business reasons for doing it as well. Thank you for that, Dev. I think one of the main purposes of the whole DIFF programme that we've put together is to show, highlight and prove that diversity and inclusivity is good for commerce. It's a commercially correct decision to do and implement. So thank you guys for a very interesting discussion. It's been a fantastic conversation to actually have and and it's great to know that there's two leaders out there that have both got different experiences, have both overcome different challenges through hard work, mentorship and uh, they go back to the fact that for anybody listening out there that's in a senior position it is your duty but also it, it is your gift and your pleasure to actually help somebody who needs that help get along in their career and you will potentially be creating the next Dev Malley or the next Roland McCormack. Now, whether people think that's a good thing or not is entirely up to them. But thank you, Roland, and thank you, Dev, and we will see you all next time at the next Dev podcast. Thank you very much. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, Make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.